exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew around you. Well, like I said, we took a two-week break to go through a couple of Psalms, and now we return to our series through John's Gospel. So as you're turning, let me remind you that we're only about six months away from the crucifixion. The heat is turning up. In the first four chapters, we saw the Pharisees interested in who Jesus was, asking them who he was. They were amazed at his miracles. But then in chapters 5 and 6, they began to oppose him in the open. And then in chapter 7, the Pharisees are ready to kill him. So this morning, we pick up right in the middle of a conversation where the religious rulers keep trying to trap Jesus so they can charge him with a crime and have him executed. In fact, from the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 8, Jesus is interrupted, contradicted, or mocked by his enemies 17 times. Jesus' enemies are becoming more and more persistent. And it's in the middle of this opposition that we restart our study. So with that being said, let's pray, and then we'll dive into this amazing text. Dear God of all knowledge, time and time again, the crowds heard Jesus' teaching, but they misunderstood his message. It is only by your grace that we have any hope this morning of understanding his words today. So Lord, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. May the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. By the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. How can someone be sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they are a Christian? J.D. Greer was the last president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he actually graduated from Word of Life in the 90s. When J.D. Greer was young, he struggled a lot with whether or not he was really saved. When J.D. was five years old, he asked his parents how someone could know that they were going to heaven. And they carefully walked him through several passages in the book of Romans to tell young J.D. how to be saved. And this was the first time he asked Jesus into his heart. And because he had talked with his parents and talked with his pastor, they were convinced that he was genuine and he was baptized a little later. More than a decade after that, J.D. began to question if he really understood the gospel at such a young age. So he asked Jesus into his heart again, and he was baptized again at the age of 16, even sharing his testimony before the congregation in a really moving way. But not long after that, he began to ask himself, had I really been sorry enough for my sin this time around? Was that prayer a moment of total surrender? Would I have died for Jesus at that moment if he had asked? He prayed again and again for Jesus to come into his heart. In his own words, he wrote, I walked a lot of aisles in those days. I think I've been saved at least once in every denomination. Greer was eventually baptized again at the age of 18, and then again at the age of 19 for a total of four baptisms. The ultimate problem was that J.D. could never feel like he was sure that he was a true Christian no matter how many times he asked Jesus into his heart or how many times he was baptized. Now, if you don't count the four baptisms... His experience is actually quite common. Maybe you've asked Jesus into your heart a hundred times, but you're still wondering whether you'll actually make it into heaven. You're hopeful you will, but you have enough doubts that you have no real peace when it comes to your eternal destiny. Maybe you're just sitting here and you think I'm insane. Is it even possible to know that you're going to heaven? Well, in the book of 1 John, 
chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. In fact, John tells us that he wrote this whole gospel that we're studying this morning so that you may have life in Jesus' name. Not, not have life in the future down the road when you die. Have life today, present tense. And it's vital that we know where we're going, that we have some level and measure of assurance of who we are and where we're going. Not just because some people live in a constant state of fear because they don't know if they're saved. But also because there's several people, oh my goodness, so many people who are totally deceived. The Bible talks about true prophets and false prophets, true disciples and false disciples, true Christians and false Christians. In fact, one of the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture is Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus tells us there will be many people on the day of judgment who will think they know Jesus, and Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here's the challenge this morning. I want to give peace to those who are true Christians, and I want to take away the peace from those who are false Christians. My prayer this morning is for you to know exactly where you stand with God, because in John chapter 8, we're going to find three marks of true disciples. Three marks of true disciples. First, we're going to find that true disciples continue believing the gospel in verses 30 through 32. True disciples continue believing the gospel. Second, we're going to find that true disciples are free from the bondage of sin. They're free from the bondage of sin. We're going to find that in verses 33 through 36. And finally, we're going to find that true disciples obey the words of God. They obey the words of God. We're going to find that in verses 37 through 47. True disciples continue believing the gospel. They're free from the bondage of sin, and they obey the words of God. But let's start with that first mark continual belief in the gospel. Look with me to verse 30 of John chapter 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. We'll stop right there. Remember that this section started with the Pharisees trying to trap him. But by verse 30, they have failed so miserably, so unbelievably, that instead of stumping Jesus, the religious rulers are less speechless and they've failed so miserably that many people have actually believed in Jesus. They're now starting to follow Jesus. Jesus was not a cult leader who could never be questioned. In fact, he often spoke and preached in public in the presence of his enemies, and it only showed to further his case that he was who he said he was. But once again, in the Gospel of John, we're going to ask this question. Is this belief a real and lasting faith? Or is it a shallow and momentary faith? Remember all the way back in, the chap- in chapter 2 of John's gospel. There's many people who trust in Jesus after he performs many miracles. But the gospel of John says that Jesus did not trust these people because he knew what was in their hearts. In chapter 6, there were thousands of followers who were ready to make Jesus king. But by the end of the chapter, most of them walked away. So we should be skeptical at this point in the story. We should be wondering... Are these disciples going to last? And I think that's exactly uh, why Jesus says what he says next. Look with me to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus' response to new followers is so wild. It's so unbelievable. He's lost thousands of people already. He's finally gaining momentum. 
And his first words to these new followers is, if your faith is real, if you are genuine believers, if you're truly my disciples, your faith is going to last. I mean, why does Jesus say these things? Why is he consistently discouraging people from following him? Why is he always asking people to count the cost? Because he knows what's in their hearts. And Christ is not pleased with a one-time profession, but rather a true faith that is a faith that continues believing. A leading U.S. denomination reported that in one year, they saw over 380,000 conversions, but they retained only 23,000 in their churches. They couldn't account for the other 360,000 supposed conversions. But where did they all go? What happened to them? I personally know many people who have seen pray a sinner's prayer or they've walked down an aisle during an altar call with tears in their eyes, but later it became clear that this was a one-time emotion-driven experience. I know many people in our community, when I talk to them about their faith, they say, oh yeah, I got saved, I got baptized, it's a fun time, I did that years ago. But the question is not, did you believe at one time? The question is, are you believing? Is it, it is through faith alone that a person is saved, amen? amen. No, works. no works. Totally the grace of God. But true saving faith is a persistent faith, a lasting faith, an abiding faith. But an abiding faith in what exactly? Jesus tells us that the faith that these people have that they're supposed to abide in his word. Notice he does not say, if you abide in my words, plural. He says, if you abide in my word, singular. He's not talking about the words that he just said prior to verse 30. He's talking about the totality of his message. That's why Jesus says that if these new believers will abide in his word, then they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Because even the disciples, the 12 disciples at this point, they didn't understand and grasp the full story. It's all the way up to the, the night before Jesus is crucified, and they still don't understand what he's talking about when he speaks of his crucifixion. But once Jesus rises from the dead, once Jesus returns, his word, his message becomes clear. You see, Jesus came not to serve but to, not to, uh, not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived a sinless life that you and I have failed to live. And then he was nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for the sin of the world so that all who would trust in Jesus with an abiding, uh, uh, persisting, lasting faith, all who will continue to believe the gospel will not perish, but have everlasting life. All who abide in Jesus' words will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Amen? Amen. But you may be sitting here and you're wondering, what does Jesus mean by freedom? Well, not only do true disciples continue believing the gospel, but true disciples are also free from the bondage of sin. Look with me to verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In verse 33, we have a classic misunderstanding between Jesus and his hearers. We've seen this over and over again, the gospel of John. Jesus is speaking spiritually and his hearers take him totally literal. They misinterpret his words. They're saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? We've never not been free. 
In verse 33, not only do they misunderstand the kind of freedom that Jesus is offering, but the irony of it all is that they're pridefully pretending as if they're not living under the occupation of the Roman government as they speak. They had a great deal of freedom under the Roman government. But at the end of the day, they had to answer to Caesar. But notice in verse 33, these believers are so proud that after one challenge from Jesus, they're already showing how unwilling they are to abide in Jesus' word. But Jesus does explain what he's talking about. Look in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I wonder if you've ever heard a testimony like this. When I was young, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And then I got older and I got involved with drugs, robbery, muggings, murder, pornography, adultery, tax evasion, torture, and some light treason, and other things I'd rather not talk about. The whole time I was a Christian. But eventually I rededicated my life to Jesus when I was older. Have you ever heard a story like that? There really are a dime a dozen within the church. And if you have heard that story, you may have thought, I'm not sure why, something sounds off. Something's not quite right. I think the reason that those stories may sound off is that true disciples are free from the bondage of sin. To be a true disciple means that you have been freed from sin and that you no longer practice it, as John says, or Jesus says in this passage. The slavery these Jews needed to be free from was worse than the Israelites ever felt under the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or even the Romans. And even though Jesus is speaking to these Jews, he's speaking to all of us. Because he says, everyone who practices sin, our problem is not that we have done bad things at one point or another in our lives. Our problem is that all we do is bad things. Outside of the freedom that Christ offers, our problem is that all that we do is sin. You see, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Do you hear the difference? We sin because in our sinful nature, we are slaves to sin, joyfully serving our master. And even when we do the right thing, we do it for the wrong reasons. That's why Romans 14, 23 says that anything not done in faith is sin. Even when we do the right thing, our good deeds are still tainted with our sin. That's why Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our good deeds are but filthy rags to a holy God. Even when we want to do the right thing, we're unable to do it. And that's why Jesus here tells us that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I know this sounds insane. It sounds crazy. It's offensive. From, from everyone, from our point of view, I'll, I'll say, to follow Christ means to give up your, your freedom. But here Jesus is telling us the opposite is true. To follow Jesus is true freedom. To remain in sin is true slavery. And you may be sitting here thinking, this is ridiculous. I sin, of course, everyone, no one's perfect, but I'm not a slave to my sin. But let me ask you, if your sin is so small, why don't you give it up? Try it. See if you can give, give up sinning and see how deeply you're controlled by your sin, how much it runs your lives. You see, as a slave, you are totally unable to free yourself. A slave has no control over their own destiny. That's why Jesus uses a, a picture, an analogy in verse 35. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
You see, slavery in Israel was very different from slavery that we saw in America. The Israelites were commanded to free their slaves at the end of every seven years. So as much as a slave lived with the family, ate with the family, traveled with the family, eventually the slave would be released and would no longer be considered a part of the family. You can't say that about a son. A son is a part of the family forever. So what Jesus is saying is that some of you are believing in me like a slave. You're following me for a time. You're with me for a time. You may even eat with me, spend time with me, hear my teaching for a time. But you're not part of the family. You're not a son. You're not adopted into God's family. So how do you get to be a part of God's family? How do you become free? Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Those who continue to believe the gospel message, they are free indeed. That's why a mark of a true disciple is that they're free from the bondage of sin. They're free from the guilt of sin because Christ has nailed their sin with him to the cross and they bear it no more. They're free from the power of sin because the Holy Spirit now dwells within the believers and gives us power to fight sin and to make war. And they're free from the consequences of sin because death, hell, and the grave are powerless over the Christian. Amen? Amen. This is why Christians are free from the bondage of sin. Now, to be clear, Christians still sin, and they sin daily. But the true disciple of Jesus does not make a practice of sinning. Do you hear the difference? The Christian sins, but he also repents when he sins. Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous man may fall seven times and gets up again, but one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. But even though the Christian may continue to sin and fall and sin again, it still needs to be said that true disciples are free from the bondage of sin. Sin is not your master, Christian. Christ is. So not only do true disciples continue believing the gospel, Not only are true disciples free from the bondage of sin, but we also see the third mark of true disciples. True disciples also obey the words of God. Look with me to verses 37 through 38. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do uh, what you have heard from your father. When Jesus implied that the Jews here standing before him were not free, they protested and they said, we're descendants of Abraham, we're free. So after Jesus explained that they were actually slaves to sin, he circles back to their relationship to Abraham and he says, yes, I acknowledge you are physically descended from Abraham, but in spite of this, you're not living like it. If you were truly descendants of Abraham, not just physically, but spiritually, you would not be trying to kill me. And you would receive my works because, and my words, because whenever I speak, I speak what the Father is telling me to say. Instead, you're acting just like your Father. And of course, that raises the question, who is Jesus talking about in verse 38 when he says, these people, this crowd, are obeying their Father? We'll look to verses 39 through 40. They answered him, Abraham is our Father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
The Jews here are quick to argue that Abraham is their father. But Jesus responds, if you were truly Abraham's children, you'd follow his example. What was Abraham's example? The most famous example, Genesis 22. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on a mountain. And Abraham obeyed and he's about to to get his son with the knife. And when right in the moment, an angel told Abraham to stop because he had passed the test. Abraham's life was a life marked by obedience to the words of God. Now, did Abraham's obedience make Abraham righteous? No, not at all. In fact, if you read the story of Abraham, there are times when he messes up massively. And he shows himself to be quite unrighteous. But in Genesis 15, seven chapters before Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, We're told Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's obedience did not make him righteous before God, but rather his obedience was evidence that he was righteous already. But here in verse 40, the Israelites' lives, they're not marked by obedience to the words of God. Jesus was a true prophet from God. His miracles proved that God was with him and his words were true. But the Israelites did not listen to Jesus like Abraham listened to God. And that's why Jesus says in verse 41, You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Sexual immorality? Where did that come from? What are they talking about? Well, I think it's a reference once again to Abraham and his relationship to a woman named Hagar. You see, Abraham had been promised that he would be made into a great nation through one of his descendants. But Abraham got impatient and he took matters into his own hands. And so he took his slave, Hagar, had sex with her and had a child with her. And they named that son Ishmael. And this was one of the times where Abraham massively messed up because even though Abraham went through this whole process and he got his son, it seems like this is the fulfillment of God's promise. God told Abraham that he would not establish his covenant through this son, but rather a son of his wife, Isaac, who was to come. So the Jews here, this is what they're saying. We're not descendants from Ishmael. We're from Abraham and we're from Isaac. We're not children of immorality. We're we're children of purity. We came from Isaac. And because we came from Isaac, we are the children of God. This also may be a reference to the Samaritans who are in the surrounding area the Samaritans who had intermarried with the other nations who had moved in. And with the intermarriages came the mixture of pagan religions with the Jewish practices, so much so that the Samaritans had totally different practices and rejected most of the Old Testament. So they may be saying, we've been faithful to you, Lord. We, we have married people within our faith. We have kept your practices. We are worshiping correctly. We are the children of God. But you see, the Israelites mistakenly believed that it was because they were descendants of Abraham, they would be saved. They were trusting in their lineage, their blood, rather than in God to save them. And weirdly enough, we're 2,000 years later, most of us probably not physically descended from Abraham, but this kind of thinking is all too common. I don't know how many people I've talked to. When I ask, are you a Christian? They say, oh, my dad was a pastor. Oh, my mother went to church every Sunday. Oh, my grandmother read the Bible every day. But listen to me, church. God does not have grandchildren. He only has daughters and sons who are adopted into his family. 
You cannot enter the family of God because of the faith of another. Unless you personally have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have no part in the family of God. And you should not consider yourself a child of God. Listen, I'd love to make the decision for everyone in this room. I'd love to choose for you. I'd love my faith to get everyone in this room to heaven. This is not how it works. The Jews in this passage, they don't understand any of this. And so Jesus goes on in verses 42 through 43. And he said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Even though Jesus, the man standing before him, was the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory on earth, the exact representation of God's being, their creator standing before him, they rejected him. If they had really loved God, they would have loved Jesus because, and because they rejected Jesus, they proved that God was not their father. There have been times when Jesus spoke in very vague phrases, so you may not uh, know exactly what he was talking about. But in this passage, he's as clear as he could possibly be. These descendants of Abraham still don't understand. So Jesus actually asked them, why don't you understand what I'm saying? But he doesn't give them time to answer. He goes ahead and he answers his own question by explaining that these men don't understand because they don't want to understand. Why don't men come to the light? Because they love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. So that's why Jesus says what he says next. Look with me to verses 44 through 46. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus has been making the same argument throughout this chapter over and over again. And it's pretty simple. Like father, like son. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. If you were God's children, you would love what he loves. But by your actions, you are proving to be children of your father, the devil. These men have transitioned fairly quickly from believing to Jesus to seeking to kill him. And so Jesus says, you're just like your father who was a murderer from the beginning. There are some scholars who think that this is a reference to Cain and Abel, the first murder that we see. And Satan was certainly a part of that. But the early church father Origen wrote, it was not one man only that the devil killed, but the whole human race. Inasmuch as in Adam all die, so that he truly is called a murderer. And I think that makes more sense within the context. Because look at what Jesus says next. He calls the devil the father of all lies. Because when Satan was in the, the garden, he told the first lie. Bishop J.C. Ryle commented on verse 44 and he said, Let us note how murderer and lying are especially mentioned as characteristics of the devil. They are sins most opposite to the mind of God, however lightly regarded and lying especially by man. And indifference to the sin of lying whether among young or old, rich or poor, is one of the most unmistakable symptoms of an ungodly condition. That's why Jesus says this crowd can't believe what he's saying. Jesus is the true prophet from God, and what he is saying is true. But they can't stomach the truth. He even challenges the crowd to point out a single sin that he has committed. 
No prophet of God, not Moses, not Abraham, not Elijah could have ever made the challenge that Jesus made right here. His sinlessness confirms that he is God's true messenger. And when he ends with his final word condemning them in verse 47, this is, this is what he says. Um, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Notice in verse 47, Jesus does not say the reason you're not of God is because you don't hear the words of God. That's not what he says. He says, you do not hear because you're not of God. Obeying the words of God is not what makes someone of God. Obeying the words of God is simply an evidence, a mark of a true disciple. It's evidence that a person is already of God. If someone has been born again, born of God, then their delight will be in the law of the Lord, and they're going to love to obey God's words. That's the attitude of a true disciple. See, my prayer this morning was for you to know exactly where you stood with God. Because in John 8, we found three marks of true disciples. We found that disciples continue believing the gospel. They're free from the bondage of sin and they obey the words of God. So let me ask you, how confident are you that you're truly saved? If you're confident that you are a true disciple of Jesus, what are you basing that judgment off of? Is it your Christian background or family? Is it based upon your own righteous deeds or is it based upon the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus? If you have believed in the gospel of Jesus, are you abiding in the gospel? Is your, marked, is your life marked by slavery to sin or freedom from sin? And how do you respond when you hear the words of God? Does it go in one ear and out the other? Or do you obey? Do you put it into practice? Well, I've got two pastoral charges for you this morning. I think John gives us two simple ways for us to apply the words of Jesus in our lives. I got you. When we get to the song, we'll fix it but we'll finish with these two charges. Let me say the first charge is a little longer, so I'll just give, give you the warning up front. First pastoral charge. Examine yourself to see if you are a true disciple. Examine yourself to see if you're a true disciple. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're within the faith, and I think that's the general message of this passage, is to ask yourself, am I a true disciple? And I understand this process can be incredibly difficult, but we need to do it because our souls depend on it. I'd start by going through the marks of the true disciple that we looked at today. First, have you believed and do you continue believing the gospel? I know many Christians who get real worried about their faith because they cannot remember a moment in time when they responded and they repented and believed the gospel. Well, let me quote J.D. Greer, the pastor I mentioned from the beginning. A present posture is more important than a past profession. You hear me? A present posture is more important than a past profession. Some people have stories like Saul. They're on the road to Damascus and they see a great light from heaven and in a moment they're changed. Some people have stories like Nicodemus where over years their heart slowly changes and turns and the spirit works. Don't anchor your hope in a past religious experience. Anchor your hope in the fact that you are currently repenting of your sin and trusting in the good news of Jesus. That's where our hope is. Not in a prayer, not in an event, not in a revival, but in Jesus. Second, are you free from the bondage of sin? 
Have you experienced freedom from sin? Are you still enslaved to your old desires? Being born again means that you become a new creature with new desires. And listen, if your desires have not radically changed, then once again, it may be fair to ask yourself, am I a true disciple? Have I been truly born again? And once again, this does not mean you're sinless. This doesn't mean that you won't struggle with sin until the day you die. But it does mean you are growing in holiness, that, they, that you are making progress in your Christian walk. I think this is what it looks like. In the words of John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this should be the testimony of every Christian, every true disciple. And the third, Mark, how do you respond when you're confronted with God's word? Do you delight in God's word? Are you happy when the word of God confronts you or do you tend to run from that confrontation? These are all questions that we need to consider. And let me say this, being born again happens in an instant. It happens in a moment. But gaining assurance and being sure of your salvation can be a process that honestly takes years. It can take years to to attain that salvation. You see, John did not write the letter of 1 John because all the people in the church already had assurance. They already knew for a fact that they were saved. He wrote to them because there were many who had no assurance whatsoever. And he wrote 1 John because many of them didn't know and he wanted them to know that they had eternal life. And let me also say practically, as you're examining yourself, as you're measuring yourself by these marks, don't examine yourself alone. God has given us the church, the local church, in this process. Mike McKinley, in his book, Am I Really a Christian?, wrote, I can't stress enough that this important process of examination can only be properly done in the context of a local church. You need other Christians who are committed to your spiritual well-being. They're the ones who will be able to get to know you and identify the fruit of your new birth. We are not good judges of our own hearts. Some people are entirely too easy on themselves. They imagine that they give evidence of genuine regret and repentance for their sin, when in reality there is none. Others with tender conditions are far too hard on themselves. They take every weakness and failure as evidence that they are hypocrites and false Christians. Being involved in a local church is immensely helpful for both kinds of people. And let me tell you, I know a church that's really close by. You know, at Horkin Baptist Church, we practice something that's called born-again church membership. We believe that only born-again believers in Jesus can be members of the church. I've got a daughter who's almost two. She is not a member of this church. She has not made a profession of faith. She doesn't even know the word Jesus. And that's why when we have new members join, we interview them. We ask them for their testimonies. We ask them to explain the gospel. We call their old pastors for recommendations. We go through this long process Because every time we add a member, this is what we're doing. We're putting our seal of approval on them saying, we affirm that this person, to our best of our knowledge, is a born-again believer. Uh, And then by adding them to the church, we're making a a commitment to love them and to serve them and to hold them accountable. And they're making that same commitment to us. This system is in place not only to give you confidence that you yourself are saved, but that the other members of the church are saved as well. The reason I'm emphasizing this is the first time that I encountered this teaching, the first time that I encountered Matthew 7, I looked around and I felt like I couldn't trust anyone around me because everyone might be a true or false Christian. 
And I've been in unhealthy churches that did not practice born-again church membership. But I've been in healthy churches that practice this. And there's a great peace in knowing that you can trust that your brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters. Um, So that's the first pastoral charge. Use the church to your advantage. Examine yourself. Measure yourself not by what other Christians may live like, but what the Bible says a Christian should be. That's the first pastoral charge. Examine yourself to see if you're a true disciple. And second pastoral charge, abide in Christ's gospel. Abide in Christ's gospel. If you're worried you may not be a true disciple of Jesus, the solution is not for you to work really hard so that you can save yourself. The solution for you is to look to Jesus, not to trust in your own good deeds, your own church attendance, anything like that, but to look to the cross of Jesus where his blood was shed for the sins of many where he substituted his life and he triumphantly rose from the grave. And this charge is not just for the false disciple in here or someone who may not even be a disciple. This charge is also for the true disciple to never find your hope in any other place than in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. That's the second charge. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.